Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm in Bondi with Matt Leach. We are in Bondi. So we've actually got this new sound kit. Yeah, we do. Which is very exciting. So we've got a traveling sound kit so we can actually get around the place a little bit more. Uh, and that's obviously all thanks to Streamtime and their support that they've given us, uh, which I should mention the uh, survey is really going off at the moment, which is great. So we've got a survey that is asking people who we should be getting around the around Australia and, and who we should be seeing. Uh, so we're sitting at 215 votes. Uh, it's good to see Kylie Timpani from Human in Perth has, has, has beaten Greg Branson. Uh, so she's now sitting on 57 votes. Didn't realise it was a competition. Yeah, I thought we were is, fishing. It is for... in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Shannon Bell on there twice, which is which is pretty good. Please, if you get the chance, um, go and you haven't done it already, go and put down who you would like to see. If you've already voted and you know you still want to suggest some more names, a lot of people have sort of just been emailing us as well. So feel free to contact us on Twitter or the emails and send through ideas, names, people, places, places, all things. sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. So, as we mentioned, we are on a home visit, which is our first ever home visit. So, we're at the home of the lovely Tara Van Amarongen. Hello. Hello. So, I'm just going to give you a bit of a, a backstory about who you are. So, more than a decade of experience advising companies on their transformation journey, playing in that unique kind of intersection between design and technology and strategy. Uh, and then you've described yourself before as a, as a twice expat. Yeah. So this, this idea that you moved from your homeland of Canada and you went to the Netherlands, um, picked up a husband at, yep. the, at the time, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then came to Australia in 2010. Uh, and today you're the group director of Fjord, yep. uh, leading multidisciplinary teams in Sydney and Canberra in design technology and human experience. And, and actually, it's, it's a bit of a lie because you're not technically the group director right the second because you're a new mum. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I'm, I'm playing hooky on work, which is fantastic. Um, but yeah, taking a step back, reflecting on things uh, and thinking about, yeah, what's, what's next for, for us, for him, for the future, for yeah. work? Yeah. So uh, we made a bit of a joke when I came in, but have you been design thinking the, the birthing experience? Well, I have to say, uh, well, that's a physical process, so there's not much you can do about it. But I <laughs> would, I would say, being a patient and being a patient in that experience, there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot that can be done there, and it's quite confronting when you see, you know, you're you're someone who's quite educated and you have enough money to, to to pay for things and get through the system okay. But there's a lot that still falls through the cracks. So imagine those more vulnerable, and who's more vulnerable than people who are sick in hospitals? So any chance I get to do something in healthcare, I'm definitely going to jump on it. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And are you also thinking about, you know, kind of experimenting with the baby? <laughs> A-B testing? <laughs> well, I did I did read a, a Medium article about uh, a father who created a sort of Kanban wall for his child. Like, you move something from one column to the other, brushing teeth, pajamas. He said it was enormously successful. So there's something in that. Wow. Yeah. We've, we've actually just got our kids onto a... Uh, it's like an app reward system kind of thing and then uh, as they do something then you get to negotiate with how much you think it's worth ah my my husband and i have been talking about because he's a cryptocurrency day trader that's right. what he does for work and we've been talking about well are we going to give him allowance or are you going to create a kid coin and then he can actually <laughs> oh, wow. have shares in where we go on holiday and he pays with his kid coin or what's that going to look like Brilliant. Yeah. I love the idea of a, this, this generation of children growing up like with a cryptocurrency knowledge. Uh, yeah. 
Lucas probably has a greater cryptocurrency knowledge than I do <laughs> at, this, at this stage. Talking about your job, though, I read recently because I was, I was looking at what, what you do and, and obviously when we first met, you were design director and you actually explained it really well in a Medium article because you said that your role is getting others just as excited about design as you are and then getting out of the way, yeah. which I thought was really lovely. Yeah. But what is it that you do? Yeah, so I guess it's it's just that. It's um it's really a translation role, so I don't have to be the expert, but I have to get people with a business hat on that are metricated on largely financial incentives um, and certain types of power structures and ladders in the yeah. corporate world and get them to see the value in design. And on the other hand, I have to speak to creatives who have a, a very different uh, you know, source of motivation, a different idea of success, and get them to, to sort of partner up together and be that linchpin between the two. So it's understanding what creatives need to be successful and be in flow and take care of them. And then it's also translating that into business terms for, for corporations so that everyone can experience the best of both worlds. Wow, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really about um, being ambidextrous or bilingual. So mm. uh, I started doing my MBA a year and a half ago to, to talk the talk. Um, oh, wow. I ended up quitting it because I realized it wasn't as relevant as I thought it was going <laughs> to be. Um, but it's also understanding you know, uh, the design craft and being able to speak both languages and talking about the highlights of both in the terms mm. that the other one uh, understands. So it's about really um, making sure that I educate myself on both sides of the coin. And I quite often go from industry to consultancy to industry consultancy intact between the two over the last few years to really make sure I understand both sides of the track. Wow. And do you, do you find yourself more comfortable on one side of the fence or the other? Or do you do, yeah. you, do you enjoy kind of it depends on the day. Depends on the day. <laughs> okay, um, right. You can have a really tough client who just doesn't get it and the penny never drops. Right. Um, and you can also have designers who just say, you know, I, I just want to make something beautiful and I just want more time and I want to obsess about something and I don't care about the scarcity of time in a project environment. Mm. Um, and you can get pressures from either way. Um, you know, talent is in demand in, in Sydney and Australia, the world for designers. So they can always pull the lever off. Well, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to leave. And corporates always pull the lever off. Well, if you don't get the project done, you know, we're not going to engage with you. And so each has their levers and they both tug at me from both sides. Yeah. So yeah, it depends on the day. I love creatives. What they do they do amazing things i could never do myself um so just to be part of that and in the conversation for me is quite a blessing let's talk about your background a little bit because you haven't had that traditional design background of yeah. being a junior designer and, and and so on and so forth and and in fact you were actually an investment analyst for a number of years yeah so you've really in my mind really come from that business side yeah yeah there was this moment where um I was working for a sort of a core part of IT and we were looking at gigantic business cases that come across our desk and my job was to scope them up before they went up to the executive committee for funding. And I could see that this big corporation was spending you know, tens of millions of dollars on things that you just knew in your heart of hearts no one would ever buy. Right. And at the time it was a retirement app. Who's going to do their retirement planning on an app? Yeah. Not my grandma, not yours. And what year, what year was this as well? Uh, for a retirement app. Yeah, probably 2013. So okay. not that long ago, but mm. I just thought that's that's not how phones were pretty small at that time as yeah, well. Yeah, but is yeah. that something they really want to interact with? But in the business case, there was no sort of user findings, no research done, and I had no way to stop it. I mm. tried actually in my role, um, probably a career limiting move to kill the project and not have it funded, and it still got funded. And I felt that that wasn't sort of you know ethical from my part that I couldn't do my job and make sure that the money from shareholders that we spend and the charges we charge moms and dads wasn't being used in a, in the right way. 
And then when I was flagged on an HR list to go into design training, literally the second day in, I was like, this is it. This is my tool to really make sure money goes to create the future we want to live in. Mm. Um, so for me, that's the pull that took me into design. Um, plus, it's just really good fun. It was way more fun than, than filling in business case templates, that's for sure. Another thing I read was you said coming to Fjord was a real eye-opener because the motivation to create something amazing was never an issue. Yeah, it's actually about putting the brakes on. Um, right. And it's making sure that people uh, sustain themselves, their energy, their creativity, and protecting them. They always want to do, particularly with design research and those insights, they want to go deeper and deeper mm -hmm. and deeper. And you almost feel like you're the one going, okay, that's enough. We, we all secretly want to be psychologists. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's so interesting when you really get down to the those levels of what What's at the core of why people do what they do? You know, people don't want a savings account because they want to see a huge amount of zeros. They want a better future for their kids because they didn't have that. And yep. when you get down to, you know, those really core motivations for people, how can you not be interested in that? Yeah. Is, it, is there a threat, though, like as, as you kind of delve deeper and deeper into this, that you start to uncover, I guess, people's tendencies that they didn't even know they had and they're therefore able to manipulate? Yeah, it, and it can also be confronting for the users. Uh, so I remember distinctly one interview where a lady bought uh, life insurance because she came from wealth and she wanted to protect that she was a pillar of the community. So it was really about her ego. And I thought, wow, you know, do you play back that to yeah. this user? Do you play that back to the bank that might, you know, play on that in their marketing? Or do you keep it close to your chest and yeah. not tell anyone that you heard that? Oh, wow, this is like black hat, white hat, like <laughs> hacking or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, be an ethical researcher. Yeah, yeah. that's um, great. So it, it does cause us into question, which is why ethics has become such a big trend, you know, ethics of companies, of researchers, um, designers. What are we going to do to make, you know, the, the world a place where everyone's included in a, in a great future? Yeah, I mean, that gives us a lot of power, but then also a lot of responsibility, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, product managers. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm doing the quote marks with my fingers that are on client side, but they're very much driven by stakeholders and what stakeholders want and the bottom line and the next quarter's profits. So us as designers, how do we manage that? We have information and how do we use it? It's very much like uh, a weapon or a protection and it can cut through different things. So how do we make sure that inclusiveness is cover, you know, included uh, diversity, that we're catering for vulnerable populations? Mm. How do we say yes or no to certain projects um, how do we make sure that there's fairness in the voices with stakeholders and we don't get overruled by the user group that you know is the biggest profit pool right biggest profit pool and maybe also the loudest yeah potentially um, yeah there are also underserved populations that don't have a voice I find that's one thing I find really interesting in Australia that there's a lot of talk about Aboriginal communities mm -hmm. and there's never an Aboriginal in the conversation and so as an outsider looking in you see that scenario played over and over and again with each project you go to that there are groups not represented but we talk about them but not <laughs> we them. we know what's best yeah it'll, it'll be exactly. fine we'll pat yeah. you on the head and send you on your way yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's worrying yeah and it's definitely in today's kind of world it's it's not it's it's a zero sum sort of game in the sense of that it's it's not going to fix anything but a lot of money is going to be spent in the meantime um, so we can spend more money in the future trying to do it again. Yeah, I don't know if um, if design debt is a term, but we basically always look for quick wins and you look for those profit pools. And at a yeah. certain point, there's this huge layer of the population that doesn't have a smartphone, you know, doesn't know how to navigate into Google search, that doesn't know how to do some very basic things, doesn't know how to call a ride share, and they just start getting left out out of huge layers of service. And that's why I think uh, design that's in the public service is really interesting. And that's one of the reasons I uh, got involved with the RSA, because they're looking about changing 
improving society through public policy. So some mm. of the most important work Fjord's done has been in Canberra. You know, how do you change something for all of Australian citizens? You know, how do you make right. the tax return invisible? How do you make sure people can get payments in an easy and simple way? Um, when How do they navigate applications to come into Australia on a visa? How do you navigate all those public services? So I think those are always the most difficult mm. to work with those types of stakeholders, but the most rewarding because the impact is just... Yeah, huge. But it's also, you're, you're not getting an ego boost from that. Fjord's not getting an ego boost because I imagine it's all behind the scenes. Absolutely, absolutely. And working at BCG Digital Ventures, all the work, you wouldn't even know sitting next to a colleague uh, next to you what they were working on. Everything was always really hush-hush. Oh, really? Um, so you'll never know actually the scale or the impact of a certain role you had a certain company because everything was behind Chinese walls. <laughs> right. Yeah. Until until the Christmas party. Yeah, um. yeah. Well, I can talk about the, um, the OzPost, the digital identity solution that's being put on blockchain where anyone in Australia can prove who they are uh, with biometrics and it's you know sitting on that sort of uh, shared decentralized network and uh, that's finally out in the open which is huge that's the first time in my career something's actually gone live oh, really? so, is that something you worked on yeah yeah so it's part of the design team in Melbourne working with the stakeholders there um, and it's 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 going to be huge you know there's different layers to getting into uh into Australia, but it means that you know there are people up in you know Northern Territories who don't have any form of identification. How are they supposed to interact with government? Get a driver's license, get a passport, mm. um, any of those things? And now that's all possible with a thumbprint. So how exciting is that? Wow. Yeah. Is that scary as well? I don't know. It doesn't scare me, not particularly. Until we cut off your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all these thumbless people walking around. It effectively gets rid of identity theft. Uh, it changes the it's equation. Encourages thumb theft, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it changes the equation. Like with any new technology, I mean, people are scared of the internet. People wanted to burn books. Look back in history. Anytime a new technology came out, yeah. there's always new implications. And it's quite often, if it's a bit, you know, uh, too forward thinking, people sort of shrink back mm. and become conservative. And there's fear. And we see that with robotics, you mm. know, automation, AI. Um, even blockchain, people are saying, oh, we're going to ban these things. You know, we're going to tell these companies to reduce screen time, etc. It's really about how do you lean in and work with these technologies yeah. and look at the implications. Because it's going to happen anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And for us to design for them and understand yeah. what that looks like at the next level rather than all the headlines. Yeah, I think historically, it's I don't think anyone's ever been able to stop innovation or in technological advances. I, I remember even in graphic design, it was like when the Mac came out and people could kind of do mm -hmm. their own graphic design. They're thinking, oh, we need to... Yeah, right. these, these are going to destroy all our jobs and then the internet comes along i think i remember even squarespace coming along and people thinking oh that's not a real website like ah. you've got to code it from scratch and i don't know it just any idea of blocking or trying to stop innovation like just yeah. doesn't seem to ever happen so yeah, yeah it just it, it just re it also makes you um want to think about how do i future proof my career mm. and what does that look like and particularly for design um you know, now, what do we do now that everyone's doing design thinking? Yeah. What do we do now that there's, you know, uh, cameras and microphones on every device and now starting to be in the walls and ceilings in our cars? Um, what does that all mean for us? How do we stay relevant? I don't have to give courses on the basics of design anymore. Everyone knows that. So how are we pushing ourselves further mm. and reinventing ourselves? And that's a question for each and every one of us. What am I going to be doing in 10 years? Mm. It's definitely not what you're doing today. Mm. What, what do you think I'm going to be doing in 10 years? I feel like you would know better than I would at this point. <laughs> I reckon uh, your podcast will be like on demand from Alexa. <laughs> yeah. Someone will be, you know, Alexa, tell me the, the latest trends in design and your voice will come up. These <laughs> <laughs> oh poor listeners. <laughs> I'm yeah. interested in the thumbprint as well because obviously that... Uh, you know, our phones, our smartphones and everything are, are reading our thumbprints now, mm. um, soon to be faces. Yeah. 
uh, or currently faces. Uh, is that a thinking behind it as well that, that you know, that this technology is going to hook into all the future technology as well? Um, well, I do think designers have to start looking at technologies to think about what's possible. It's an inspiration source. But um, with the biometrics, we did a huge amount of research all across Australia. And there was this really interesting thing about proximity and technology and, and, and people's data. So if you draw the trade-off between um, convenience, uh, security, um, and also personalization, people were, we were asking them, you know, if you had to give your data, for example, to do something, um, how do you feel about that? No way, it has to be anonymous. I don't like, you know, that the flybys knows what I buy. Yeah. Okay, but if we make your life easier and your next, you know, grocery list is completely automatic and it's click and collect and it's there, are you willing to make that trade off for the convenience? For sure, absolutely. So we saw that that was a big theme with people. So it's about that tipping point where yeah. I feel comfortable enough. Yeah, or, that they're the, getting something the trade, from it. Yes. And the other one was proximity. So we asked them if your um, biometrics are being stored or used in the cloud or in your iPhone or in a chip in your wrist, You know, how do you feel about that? And people wanted a healthy level of proximity. They didn't want anything attached to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they liked that it was in their phone and people thought it was in the device itself. But if it was something obscure like the cloud, that kind of weirded them out and they thought it was a bit too abstract and in, it wasn't secure enough. So that nice combination of biometric, we're not taking your heartbeat, we're not taking your retina scan, but your fingerprint, they felt okay with that. And the fact that it was you know, picked up by some sort of reader, people felt, felt okay about that. And they were getting something in exchange for it. I don't have to whip out my driver's license. I don't have to go through the pain of getting a passport. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where the sweet spot was from a user perspective. So it's all about a trade-off. Yeah, about absolutely. What do I get? absolutely. And I, I mean, in ten <laughs> years, in ten years, they might say, "All right, the chip is awesome." I mean, yeah. you watch any episode of Black Mirror. That's that's yeah. where we're going to be soon, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what keeps me awake at night. <laughs> it's funny that you bring this up because obviously, where you and I first met was for an Agda event that was held at Vivid called "Can Technology Make Us More Human," uh, which I emceed, and there was on the panel um, Joy Mitchell, Buddy Lewis, and Ash Donaldson. Uh, and it was a nerve-wracking panel for me because I clearly knew nothing compared to the four of you. It was it was such an eye-opening uh, experience, and it was also interesting to see how you not necessarily disagreed, but you you all had slightly different takes on on how technology and humanity kind of work together. Yeah, and um, since then, there's been some of the research that we've been looking at uh, as part of the Fjord Trends when we look at uh, AI and robots. There was this uh, study that, that sort of along those along that theme talked about how if you Harvard did some research where if you wanted to look at say cancer diagnosis and machines did it on their own it was in the low 90s and if people did it on their own a pathologist it was in the mid 90s but if they worked together and they complemented each other and collaborated it was in the high 90s it was like 99.5 percent and that really solidified for me yeah it's not one or the other but it's both together mm-hmm. and we just have to work out what's fully automated what's fully human and then there's this big area in the middle which we haven't defined yeah. and what does that look like and I think because the edges are so fuzzy that's why we were all kind of like yeah we think it's we think it's a good thing but there's no hard edges on it and do you think black mirror science fiction do you think that helps or hinders uh that kind of gray area i think it's healthy in the sense that one of the biggest obstacles for any of these technologies particularly um ones that are more controversial like blockchain is getting the masses comfortable with it there will be a new design role that just teaches people to be comfortable to trust new technologies and Mm. i think Black Mirror being on a platform it is with the reach it has 
is huge for pushing that into the social consciousness, for getting people okay with it, for acceptance. There's so many technologies out there that were way ahead of their time, and they just sort of faded into nothing because you know people got scared and they weren't ready for it. So anything to sort of get people thinking about what's possible um, and inspiring them in, in terms of you know what the future could look like. And also, you know, there's a bit of drama, of course, yeah, and a bit always. of scare tactics. Um, but yeah, just pushing the conversation towards future thinking and constructive. I think it's a good thing. And it's interesting, we're sort of talking about changing people's mindset. So uh, we're talking about fingerprints. Maybe that's something that we've been used to for so long as identification. So maybe people are like, well, fingerprints have been around since what, the 70s, forensic evidence. It's been identified for a long time. Yeah. You know, any, anyone working with government teachers, we're used to fingerprints. You, you were talking a little bit, yeah, about changing people's relationship with technology. Mm. But at what point do you think um, companies or people might out there might think, I'm just going to give up on this whole section and I'm going to go for the next generation that's coming up. So rather than changing perspectives, going yeah. with people that are, have already grown up with iPads and iPhones and cloud technology. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's sort of about sanctioning groups of people who, who are ready for that next one. I remember at uh, CBA seeing um, their IT department is 5,500 staff when I worked there. And there was this huge sort of agile versus waterfall you know, right. discussion happening and there was one group that were on their fifth version of agile you know five years ago and then there were people who were really sticking their heels in the ground saying you know waterfall's really good right. and it was interesting and I, I remember um talking to the cio saying what if we created internal competition and we created a second it business inside that was those forward-thinking agile practitioners and all of a sudden the business had now two choices and we could keep those employees happy by them running off and doing their thing and the projects that suited Agile and the forward-thinking methodologies they could run and the remaining projects that are just about resiliency and payments and you know pretty yeah. standard stock stuff could stay with the other practitioners. And uh, he was a bit of a rock star. He was like, yeah, that's great, that's great. Mm. But yeah, they're fractions within. And do you decouple and send them on their way or do mm. you take everyone on that journey? And if it's the latter, there's a very, very long tail. Right. right, very long tail. So it's kind of up to you where, what space do you want to play. And I know for me, uh, thinking in Australia um, and seeing what's out there globally, I worry about how we might be a bit further back in terms of technology adoption or design. Mm. Um, so how do you find the companies in Sydney, Melbourne, that are on that cusp? And how do you find stakeholders who are willing to give it a go and mm. put some money behind something that is, yeah, a little bit, little bit out there, a little bit risky, so that we can do some interesting stuff and push mm. those boundaries. Now, you've talked about living in the Netherlands yeah. and uh, almost the opposite of that, that it felt a very futuristic yeah. environment. Can yeah, you very talk liberal. more on that? Yeah, so I mean, on our last visit, uh, I mean, you could clearly see um, the middle of Utrecht has this canal system. And it used to be that back in the day, all the goods were brought into town on the canal and they were put into um, you know, all these tunnels and then brought up to the shops on the ground level. And today they've reopened that and they're using um, electric powered boats to bring in all the goods into the city. And there's absolutely you know, no fossil fuels being burnt by the, wow, the city. Wow, no traffic. Um, yeah, to bring in all of that. And so you have, they've got bike infrastructure. Makes so much sense. Um, all the parking spots downtown are for electric vehicles. Um, you know, they've had food waste pickup and batteries and medicine pickup and, and paint and, um, you know, renewable energy. And a lot of these things are just part of the social consciousness. It's the norm. It's not the exception. And... Uh, you don't realize that until you come here and you sit in your building and you talk to the neighbor and say, hey, should we ask the strata to put solar panels on the roof? And they say, why? 
and your jaw drops and yeah. you think oh my goodness we've gone 30 years back wow um yeah so the, the conversation's different i worked at a sustainable investment firm in holland and it was just understood that that was the best way to invest money there were tax break for it you know all the infrastructure was there um and australia is a different place so it's double-sided there's opportunity but you also have to educate people so what what is it is it the government that is more forward thinking or is it people more i think um my reflection is that Australia very much has a permission culture right. and Dutch people just go for it. Just do it. Yeah, like yeah. The, the amount of people that um, have lived abroad, that have a very worldly perspective, uh, speak many languages, really look at what's happening at global issues. Um, there's a lot of things that make the news there, you know, that are happening in different countries that, that don't with Australia. And the people just, you know, they, they just, yeah, they just give it a go. They just try it. They're brave, uh, industrious, uh, and, and very confident. Oh my gosh, we're, we're waterfall and they're agile. <laughs> Obviously, that's, I mean, that's sort of my experience that was there. As, an, as a foreigner, you're speaking with higher educated people who speak English. I was working in a, you know, a sustainable investment bank, um, obviously, with, with people who are more of that mindset. But I found it really inspirational in leaving that job. Uh, I mourned it for years afterwards, saying, why didn't I stay there when people were busy with all these great thoughts about what's good for the world, and then we see if it makes money rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you end up there in the first place? Because obviously you had studied... As a business management, a degree yeah. in business management in yeah. Canada. Yeah, I just, um, we had uh, in my management accounting class, they said, do you want to spend your final year abroad? We have some students who've just come back from an exchange school in Holland. You can hear their stories. And I thought, yeah, let's do it. At the end of the class, everyone said they're going to do it. Yeah. But when it came time to buy the flight, I was the only one. Oh, really? Uh, so I went there for four months and I ended up staying for six years. Fell in love with it. I renounced my Canadian citizenship. Wow. I became a European citizen. I learned the language, bought a house. I was ready to stay until we came to Australia for just a year, um, <laughs> which was eight years ago now. So. I thought there's no solar panels, but the beaches are nice. Yeah, well, uh, we wanted to live abroad and everyone who's been in Australia has never said it was you know, horrible. It's always mm. said it was amazing. So sight unseen, we arrived in 2010 and um, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. Along that path, you ended up at CBA, so Commonwealth Bank of Australia, yeah. Yeah. Um, and particularly in the, in the innovation lab, yeah. um, which I always thought was really interesting at that time because it felt like they were the ones who were putting more money than anyone else or, or really taking it seriously. Yeah, that well, was really a turning point. Um, so Michael Hart decided there was new capabilities the bank had to invest in. So experimentation, um, agile data science, design thinking, they funded it like a program and they just uh, they partnered up with UTS Executive Education, found some amazing facilitators and started taking cohorts through the, the training. I remember one of our facilitators, he said, there's two models. Uh, when you're doing capability build like that, there's the elephant model or the turtle model. The elephant one is like most companies where they just set up uh, a small team of gurus and go around and do projects. And that's like the elephant. It takes, uh, they have one baby, it takes 24 months gestation period, and it's sort of one shot and that's your big bet. But if something happens to that one baby, there goes your bloodline. Whereas at CBA, he said, you guys are doing the turtle model. You're going to have thousands of eggs hatch and some of them will make it to the beach and some of them will make it to the water and some of them will come back. And he said, I'm going to liken that to design training or we're going to flood IT and everyone's going to get exposure to it. And we know that only some will pick it up and take it forward, but at least everyone understands the vocabulary, understands what it's about. So um, yeah, I became one of the one of the first groups to go through that. And it was an amazing journey. You did see people change their perception of it, uh, vocabulary change, projects change, credibility of design went through also a, um, yeah, quite a journey in that 
uh, that time. And for me, that was my career change saying, this is a thing, I want to be part of it. Yeah, yeah well, an amazing opportunity for you at the, at the time, but yeah. also, you know, credit to you, you really took it by both hands and, and jumped right in. Yeah, um, there was an opening for the lab and uh, we were in our final presentations from UTS. You have to do a, a live project over the three month period. And um, Tiziana, who ran the lab, was recruiting for it and said, oh, you should apply. And I said, so not qualified. You know, she's like, but you're really enthusiastic and seem really passionate about this. I said, still so not qualified. Um, <laughs> Enthusiasm will get you anywhere. Yeah. So she said, well, <laughs> I'll reopen the opening, just apply anyway. So I did. And the interview was the best. You know, a day before they said, here's the brief. You have to make the next chocolate confectionery product for the Japanese market. Come in tomorrow with your prototypes. That's it. And uh, so I wow, went, cool. went to Chinatown. I bought every Asian chocolate I could find. I whipped up three different prototypes on packaging and flavors and things at home. I drew up a business model canvas. I took it in, showed them all these, you know, <laughs> hacked up together prototypes of things. Um, and they were like, yeah, you're in. And uh, it was such a great environment. Um, you're really separate from the rest of the bank, a bit of an incubator and self-driven projects. You could decide what you wanted to work on which was fantastic from a motivational perspective. And being in the same lab as IDEO, Deloitte Digital, um, Steve Wozniak came in for a day during the Sydney siege. He stayed in with us um, the whole day. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it was a great exposure and for me quite inspiring, yeah. What was Steve like? He was just a funny, goofy guy that made <laughs> jokes all the time. I mean, he's not like this, you know, uh, omnipotent, you know, uh, god or something. He's just a normal guy. He didn't rock up on his segue, did he? No, no. he didn't. And uh, the idea was supposed to be that, uh, you know, the heads of our corporate clients would come in and spend the day with him. Mm -hmm. uh, paid for by marketing. Um, but it was the day of the Sydney siege where everyone was told not to go anywhere. Right. So no one came. And it was just wow. us who worked in the lab with Steve hanging out for a day. And we had these old relics of all these different old like Apple computers. He's like, yeah, I designed that and I did that. Oh, that one's a bit embarrassing. This is really cool. <laughs> that um, would be cool. Yeah, he was just sort mm. of reminiscing with the, the relics. Super lovely guy. Absolutely a lovely guy. Yeah. I think I would have braved the Sydney siege to go hang out with Steve Wozniak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's been brave. <laughs> so what well, you couldn't because of Uber. Didn't the Uber prices go really high? Oh, did they? Couldn't get it. Might have been Which worth it. Actually, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a side thing, but we're actually, we're talking on the day where an Uber self-driving automobile has killed someone in America, yeah. mm. which is, is horrible and absolutely horrible for her family. Um, but it's also... Well, everyone involved as well, the people behind the wheel that thought yeah, the car wasn't Yeah, because there was someone, a person right? behind the wheel and... And presumably a passenger, maybe, if there was a passenger. I don't know, car. but yeah. the, um, but you know, it really feels like it's going to push that kind of whole area back quite a bit because they've had to cancel all their... Um, it does potentially become an I told you moment for people on Facebook yeah. that don't have anything else to do with their day, right? Like it almost gives them ammunition to say, well, this yeah. is inevitable, this is the beginning, this is... Yeah. Whether or not that's grounded in any evidence whatsoever. But you stuck but, that up against all the other accidents are happening between totally. exactly. automobiles and... Exactly. I, I guess I'm saying they probably don't do that. No, do they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, how do, what's your take on? Yeah, when, when you mentioned that earlier today, I thought, yeah, I saw that in the news and I dug into it a bit more to see what had happened, seeing there was, you know, a driver uh, behind mm. the wheel um, that had it on auto. And the first thing I thought about was how many, you know, of the Apollo space missions, you know, had mm. casualties before we made it to, to Mars. And I'm not saying that 
uh, any one of those you know casualties of that uh, was a sacrifice we should have made but it's it's not the weirdest thing in the world for something really massively breakthrough to have setbacks and the way you know elon musk uh whenever he has sort of something explode, he just goes, all right, we're going to get out there, we're going to try it again, we're going to try it again, but we're learning from it. So I think for the team that set that car out in Phoenix that day that was from Uber, how they might be feeling, it's just, you know, take this lesson, apply it, you know, work with it, make sure it doesn't happen again, um, and just make sure that all those lessons, that they're, they're validated, they're honored, you use that to take this forward. And to your earlier point, the technology is going to come, it's just how are we going to get there? Mm. Um, so really sad case. Um, but yeah, there's there's going to be bumps along the way for, for sure. And and I wish that policymakers would sort of think with rather than sort of blocking. You yeah. know, how do they help us get along that? Right. We have so much, you know, cloud and insight and, and sway. How do they help us get, get through this rather than just being naysayers? Mm. Yeah. I think Uber's actual statement was that they're, they're looking at what's happened mm. and they're, they're willing to turn over all their information to the police, and, yeah. and which I thought was really great. Absolutely. But then I was also worried that the police aren't really going to understand what they're looking at more than likely. Yeah, than it, yeah I mean, a, a couple of years ago, I did a piece of work about the, for the Minister of Transport on the, the future of transportation and, and uh, from a government perspective, you know, how, uh, how things change. And one of the big findings from all the different bits of research was that if just humans are together, um, you know, driving cars as we do. There's lots of accidents. Um, autonomous vehicles work really well if it's just autonomous vehicles. But that yep. middle bit where you have human factors as well as autonomous vehicles together, that's where it's really messy. And that's where they're still trying to work out how, how, do, how does that work and how do we make these uh, commingled lanes and, and how do you have car share that's autonomous sitting there as well with someone who's on a bike um, just trying to commute and get some get some fresh air and what what does that look like and that's the part where the most energy and, and work is being done on now as well as the implications um, yeah for different industries like government so if you have an autonomous vehicle you no longer have people paying money for a driver's license so they're going to have to tax movement what are the implications of right. all of those right. different uh, consequences of autonomous vehicles oh wow vehicles? I hadn't thought of that taxing movement I like that yeah, yeah. I stay at home it's cheaper yeah. Okay. That's 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 sent a whole other. Thing <laughs> yeah. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to talk about because you're you're obviously working in Fjord and you're you're yeah. being able to kind of change a lot of stuff there. Yeah. For for the better. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you also teach a lot, uh, which is another way of kind of hopefully changing things for the better. Yeah. How how did that come about? Yeah, I realized at a certain point, I think, um, you know, you can be a craftsman and a practitioner, um, but doing project delivery, it's just hard work. You know, being on projects on the ground, it, it, it takes a lot out of you. And um, as you sort of uh, grow through seniority, at a certain point, you find yourself, and I found this last year with my promotion, I was no longer delivering projects. And so you're at arm's distance from all the work. And I had this moment realizing I'm never going to be in another user interview. I'm never going to be able to tell about insights that I self-learned uh, from being somewhere. Mm. I won't have those powerful stories anymore. And that was a bit, um, yeah, to come to terms with that, that I'm, I'm no longer involved in that. I'm looking at, you know, finance and operations and headcount and recruitment and, you know, whether stakeholders are happy and doing retros on projects and, yeah, just a lot of management-y stuff. And the heart of that practitioner element was gone from my role. Not saying that I didn't want to keep growing in my mm. career, but I needed something else where uh, I felt, yeah, you feel that heart and soul and passion for design. So one of my original mentors, he uh, said, do you want to come and be involved in this course I'm doing? It's an entrepreneurship MBA where students come in, they're mature students, they need to have a venture idea, 
and through the course of the program they get real world skills in order to launch it. So service design, business design, consultancy skills, um, venture pitching, how to get seed funding, the, the whole thing to get their, their thing up and running. So he said, do you want to be a coach on one of the projects? And I said, no, I want to teach it. <laughs> uh, so I teach the module that talks about service and business design. Great. And uh, it's the module where rather than working on their own ventures, they actually do something for uh, a client. So um, Sydney Fish Market wanted to redesign that urban space in a more sustainable way. That was a client. Indeed wanted to be a challenger to seek. There was also uh, a company called the the Critical Window Foundation, which wanted to capture kids with autism before they went to school to help them get the services they need. So all these different really interesting projects and all the students had to learn design. Wow. And that was great because um, it was hard work as well. It was every Tuesday night. I was pregnant at the time, so it was a big ask. <laughs> but it's so fulfilling. There was one week I came and attendance had dwindled a bit and I wasn't sure if they were quite getting it and people hadn't done their homework. And then one student said to me, I really need this right now. And I said, what do, you, what do you need? Like the sandwich you're eating, what are you talking about? And he said, no, 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 I need to be here. I need to be doing this because in my job, I don't see any career progression. Nobody cares. I just feel really stuck and I'm here and I see that this is a way forward. This is mm. a way for me to change my career, to do something meaningful. He was working on the autism project and he said, this makes a real difference to real families and I'm so glad I'm here tonight. And of course I was like, all yeah, right, job that's... done. Um, you know, and I left that evening going, the, the reward you get by giving back to people and helping them go on that career journey that I went on to, mm -hmm. um, that you go to work and you actually give a shit about what you're doing. You actually care. You're doing something worthwhile and meaningful, um, you know, rather than just passing a report from one desk to another. That's really what it's all about. So the combination of both, of, you know, being able to, to run a design firm and making sure I provide space for all those designers to do that great work, but also just for me to be able to, to teach. So I'm going to go back next year and, and do it again. Um, and I'm also working with AFTERS, the Australian Film and Television School. Wow. And it's about, uh, it's an innovation course, the first of its kind for them, for that industry, for people to also learn about design, innovation. How do they rethink their careers? How do they go from more egocentric idea generation to distributed and user-based? How do they capture audience? Um, how do they rethink what they're doing to make sure they're still relevant in an industry that's very much becoming disintegrated, intermediated and, and sort of crumbling. Media is really having a, a difficult time now. So yeah, those opportunities to take people on that journey is something that I would encourage anyone, if you can, to get involved in. Amazing. Yeah. Now, jumping straight back to <laughs> Time at Fjord, um, sort of talking about innovation and, and sort of bringing startup concepts and toolkits into a very kind of corporate yeah. kind of area. I just wanted to talk and hear your perspective on the challenges, challenges of that, I think Matt was joking before that someone made fun of him for calling you an entrepreneur at one point, yeah. um, which yes, I deplore that term as well, but, yeah. but just any thoughts on kind of trying to bring that sort of, that sort of startup thinking to like yeah. very high tier, very, you know, multinational companies and government organizations and things. Yeah. It's look, it's really hard because obviously, you know, the designers, you know, there's a certain demographic there, there's a certain mindset and you throw them into corporate and they're just not feeling it. Right. And the corporates are super excited. They're like, all these hip young kids have come in and you know they're putting post-its up on the walls and they dress differently and <laughs> you know look at the beautiful slides they can make and you've got this really huge tension that both sides feel but need each other so much the hard part is how do you how do you get them to accept each other how do you tell the designers look what you're doing has a huge impact for a company that has 30,000 employees and maybe you're not you know thinking it's the best working environment or the most interesting work but look at the scale and impact and how you're taking this company on the journey and then it's telling the corporate 
yeah, you need to cater for space that the designers need. You give the need to give them the time. Um, you need to really listen and honor the research insights. Uh, you need to give us some runway in order to test things in the real world, gain user adoption before you see profits and things like this. So it's, it is really tough. It's a lot of education, a lot of effort you have to put in on both sides. Don't allow the corporates to burn through your designers. Keep the designers interested with the promise something will go live at the end. It's, it's tough. It's really, really tough. At least one lesson I learned at CBA is that a well-funded corporate can, even though there's a lot of red tape to go through, when you do get something live, it can be huge. You know, mm. having a disaster relief one-click donation on their net, you know, on their on their app on a phone, when that goes live, even if it takes three years for an executive to see your <laughs> your prototype for a button. Yeah, well, but when that happens, that's a huge moment. And mm. when there's actually a disaster and that goes live, that's huge. Um, and that's what you do it for. So. Um, yeah, it's, but it's definitely tough, very challenging. The thing you see in Australia is a lot of corporates, they want people from startup and from um, entrepreneurship, and they want that feeling in. But as soon as they go in, it's almost like it's, at least I've felt, it's almost not appreciated. That's not how we do things around here. Yeah. So it takes a really uh, bold type of person to be able to live that and to continue to do that because corporate wants you very much to conform into their job descriptions and you know the the assembly line of yeah, the structure. corporate life, yeah. KPIs. Yeah, so you really have to be someone who just you know really believes in something, and you have to be a little bit off center to 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 go down that path and to make a make a difference. It's not for the faint hearted. Mm. I mean, we can go in for a project, get in and get out, but for people who stay, uh, it's a tough gig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of that will be kind of personality too, like the way that you talk about it. Yeah, you're very sure. impassionate. You know, you've got all this history behind you about doing it. I feel like if I was in the room with you, I'd be like, okay, Tara knows what's going on. I trust <laughs> her. So obviously you talked about recruitment as well before. It yeah. sounds like it's very important to have the right people with those, I hate to say soft skills, but almost soft skills like personal, interpersonal skills to bring everybody together. Is Absolutely. That something and, well, you also just need... Um, I mean, there will be someone who will be that interface with the stakeholders and that's that person. Our leads are at that level. They need to interface with stakeholders and they're the ones who are on that education journey. And I remember at BCG, they described it really well. The design process was three phases. You had sort of the design thinking or innovation phase. You had the build and then you had sort of the commercialization and launch phase. And they basically said out of all the three phases, the first one is just about educating the client. It's just about getting them used to the process. Yes, we're going to come up with some ideas, but we're really going to learn what's happening when we start to build this thing and launch it and, and learn on the you know on the fly. But that first phase, it's about getting the business reoriented. And you know, so much energy is put into taking the stakeholders through this, understanding why qualitative research is of value, understanding why we do lo-fi prototypes, not being attached to your ideas. That's really the heart and soul of it. And at Fjord, we've been thinking about one of the biggest benefactors of our work is actually teaching a company to think differently. Yeah, we don't charge for that. That's not a tangible thing you can mm. put on a statement of work and say, you know, we're going to bill you so much yeah. money Education. For this. Mm. But that is really the hugest byproduct. Yeah. yeah, you get some concepts, but they're going to, you know, pivot as, you know, as you test. So, yeah, it is really about getting people to, to think differently. And um, th- that's a really hard thing to articulate uh, and to find people that are, are able to do that. But designers, when they love what they do and they're motivated intrinsically, that will naturally happen when mm. they're put in front of a group of stakeholders. Yeah. How, how do you describe what you do to someone who's not in the industry? Do you, do you call yourself a designer now? Yeah, my mom has no idea what I do. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. 
I often just tell people uh, we design new products and services and particularly digital ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll always pick up an example in their environment. So if I was at the hospital, I would say, well, see this yellow piece of paper you make me bring to every appointment? Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that uh, it, rather than you writing things down, that was just, you know, sitting on my electronic medical record that we invested all this money in that no one uses if it was just there everyone could access it and i got a you know text message notification when my appointment time changed or rather than you faxing (laughs) my scan results to my gp which still happens it still happens um that it would you know already be sitting somewhere in the in the cloud in a secure environment so i always try to make it relative to the environment that they're in by the way the midwife said faxing is great because you can't hack a fax which I just did a massive face palm. I thought, wow, Great. wow, that's a, yeah, wow. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you could recruit her for some sort of research at some stage. Yeah, I'd love to redesign the patient experience. Unbelievable. It's like, don't, if you're in labor, don't come to the hospital without that piece of paper. Isn't it incredible though? Like, I mean, that, like even just that small little statement like is, is so incredible. Like it's almost what you were talking about before. Like this is the way we do things. Yeah. Like, we've always done it this way. This yeah. is where we do things because this is, this is the way it works and changing mm. people like, um, that nurse's mind. Yeah. The psychology, really challenging. yeah. The psychology behind it is so interesting. Like, uh, how can an app be so, how can it challenge, you know, sort, sort of your power base and your, you know, your feelings of security at work, yeah. but it actually does. It's a really big thing at CVA. There was a lady who, uh, talked to us, to us about when we were going to, uh, that open workplace where it's flex desking. And she said, you have to think there are people who say, if you move my desk, I will die. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, for some people change um, and having the implications of, you know, I might be sitting next to someone differently. People won't understand me. I don't feel safe. I don't have a home. Work might not go well. Then I might have relationship problems. We break up, blah, blah, blah. I might end up on the street. You know, like people really think about those things that Mm. their world has to stay the same. So Mm. changes you know, not accepted by everyone. It's that comfort of that, that one thing yeah. that their desk is, is safe yeah. and anything else can be happening, but they've got that one sort of comfort. Yeah. And you have to honor that. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you'll lose them. It occurs to me, you mentioned RSA before. So yeah. the Royal Society of Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I've got it written in front of me. I'm pretending I don't. <laughs> I was really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that, but I imagine that's, I mean, that sounds like a similar kind of society in the way that you're you're trying to kind of uh, communicate and encourage mm. uh commerce and, and business to understand what yeah they design do. does yeah what they do is they um their mission is to improve society and advocate reform and they do it largely through public policy and most of their funding goes towards research so uh last year for example they wanted to look at economic security they said uh even though we've come out of the credit crisis and there are more jobs and there's growth, you know, mm. uh, according to how it's measured today, people are not actually experiencing economic security. It's not improved at a household level basis. Yes. So they funded a whole bunch of research into that saying, well, h- how do we help through public policy globally? How do we get fellows to be in touch with each other and collaborate on these projects? And uh, one of the ones that they're running now is a, a trial in Scotland where they say there's people who are going to be affected by automation. So rather than waiting for those people to later have to get payments from the government because their jobs have been taken over by the bots and the machines, why don't we give them a once uh, upfront payment to take them out of those jobs and help them upskill? And let's just see if that creates like a citizen's wage for them and we take them out of that situation proactively and run as a pilot and see what we can do. And that's really interesting to say, well, if that is successful and the RSA funded it, would 
you know, government in many Western countries take that on board. Um, so those types of themes and the collaboration across the globe is really quite interesting. Mm. And it's surprising from such an old institution that they're thinking of such new ideas. I can't remember how long they've been around for, but a, a, a decent amount of time. And, yeah. and there's, there's like about 30,000 in the network. Yeah, it's massive. And I mean, you know, they'll have like a million podcast downloads and, you know, all these clicks and all these fellows. Um, And they've been around, you know, since they they also claim to um, be involved in helping end slavery, for example, by enlightenment and being part of that discussion. So it's it's this organization entrenched in so much history. And it's all about sort of shifting policy to help keep up with societal issues um, on a global basis. So um, I went to one of their talks hosted and we co-hosted with Jerry Scullion, um, one about diversity. And that was really interesting in, in design. Uh, we already are much more diverse than, you know, for example, than Accenture, which we're owned by. Yeah. But how do we increase that? And I said, I find this a really interesting discussion because in order to meet my, my quota of females or diverse populations, I can only hire them. And to me, that doesn't feel necessarily um yeah that doesn't feel fair and if i want for example people with disabilities i have sort of you know hunt for them and i have to say like do you have a disability okay i want you to be a designer at my firm and that also i felt Mm. uncomfortable with and so it created a really enriching discussion of people saying well no it is okay you will need to do that in order to bring them in but also you need to look further down the chain and there's ways in which you do it and there's ways you know you need to engage with these people and what sort of uh, motivation do you come at it from and how do you articulate it and yeah it's complex and there's many stakeholders in that so for that forum to be created to have those discussions was was fantastic and that's why I decided to be a fellow mm. yeah so what what do you have to do as a fellow um pay a fee pay a fee right <laughs> yeah um it's really up to you how much you want to engage. So, for example, um, you know, this, this pilot in Scotland, you know, in their newsletter, there's an email address saying, if you want to be involved in the research, reach out to someone. Right. Um, you can go to um, their events. You can host them. You can write articles for them. The interesting thing, you know, is that it's so big that if they say, for example, economic security is something we're going to fund and we're going to look at next year, you know that you put in a proposal with how many other fellows to, yeah. to do a piece of research. So it is big, but getting their uh, newsletters and hearing what they're what they're working on and the articles being written is quite interesting but uh, to be honest i've got a lot on and you know <laughs> i read the the articles and i'll go to some of the events and when i had more time at fjord i would host some um, but i haven't been actively involved in any research but nothing's required of you um, it's also something you can just read listen to their podcast and read articles for free and and probably that's that's probably the the best thing out of that is you're you're almost closer or more in touch with the kind of research as it's happening, which I imagine is incredibly important for your for your role at Fjord as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you can't do it yourself in these really deep studies, it's really great to read mm. about what people are are doing um, and seeing where the conversation is is going. Um, but one of the things that Fjord they often talk about is not about just design thinking and conceptual, but about design doing. And what I love about the RSA is they're actually you know doing research and they're trying things yeah. rather than all the people that are just part of the discussion but on yeah. the ground don't actually do anything yeah. mm. uh, Fjord just put out their 2018 kind of trends yeah well worth looking at and it's, it's one of the best sort of trend forecasts that I've seen for a while because it actually feels really um, like it's talking about stuff that uh, actually could have some impact uh, but what I was interested when when we came in I said yeah. oh I have been looking at this and you said it's actually it's not from kind of a, a team of researchers it's it's from yeah. all the designers can you explain that a bit yeah more? sure so uh, i mean uh, when i was working at cba we had to do trend analysis and then you realize there's just one guy who works at a place and you know he's in this 
tech tower. And the he writes, trend guy. Yeah, yeah, and he writes this thing. And he, <laughs> Call him the trend He was guy. the guy walking around with Google Glass, right? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> whereas the, the trends, we have a session in every single one of our studios. So a thousand designers in our now, I think, 28 studios um, get together and say, what do you see? And the point of trends is not what's going to happen in 2030, but where do you see clients investing in things? Where are people's thoughts and concerns? Where are the conversations going? And what do you think is going to hit the ground in the next 18 months? And we always back it up with real life cases where we see, oh, this company invested in this this company invest in that where's money actually going mm. so all of those uh those sessions from all of the different studios get pulled together we bubble up into some themes and then when we have our um equinox week which is where all the designers come together for a week-long conference for ourselves all the designers all of us so we all went to berlin in november all thousand of us which wow. was amazing uh, we invited 85 clients for a client day and they came from five continents and they also helped collaborate on the trends to say, you know, this is my take on it, etc. So it's this huge collaborative effort. It's very bottom up. And it, you know, this year we always have this difficult time to call and to curate and pull it together into some sort of tight knit. But we came up with seven and then there's that overarching theme of tension to say there's two dichotomies that are, are really there's a, a huge amount of tension between many different elements and mm -hmm. all the trends sort of hang underneath that. For me, what, what I really like about the trends, they might be shown in other um, by other companies or other, you know, trend trend hunters and people who write articles. But we also uh, follow it up with real examples to say, yes, machines are a big thing. But the example that, um, you know, Amazon took over a robotics company and they have 45,000 robots working for them and they're still hiring people is an example that machines are not going to take your job. They're only going to complement it. Not or, in the next 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, uh, there's a company doing X, Y, Z, and this is where we see it happening. And I really like those those real-life examples. They're really mm. interesting, and they come from all different, you know, uh, countries. So if you go to Singapore, there's a sushi train somewhere where they're using facial recognition to tell the chefs in the back which dishes people like. You've got that little tidbit which brings the trend to life, and it's fun to have a factoid. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank yeah. you for having us. Yes. Um, what we usually do is try to find out if um, people want to find out some more about you. Yeah. Is there somewhere on the internet where you, where you live uh, that you would like to point people towards? Yeah, look, they can um, they can reach out. I'm on the Fjord website and leadership group and I'm on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I don't do much on, uh, on Twitter, um, but all the rest of the socials I'm on. 2016 uh, was your last tweet. Yeah. <laughs> It all became too much. It all be, I'm, I'm a bit, there's a lot of talk about the attention economy. And um, since having my son, I realized that we'll be at the breakfast table and he's looking at us looking at screens. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I've decided in the downtime, I'm trying to read ebooks and do things that are a little bit more um, upbuilding <laughs> rather than just scanning my Instagram every two yeah. hours doing nighttime feedings. Yeah, so good old email, reach out. Uh, LinkedIn's probably the, the best one just because that's where all the corporates are on as well. Um, and it's great for recruiting, seeing what's out there. So, yeah, reach out. Great. Fantastic. Are you recruiting for anyone specific at the moment? Oh, look, sure? we're always good to meet talent. It's a supply and demand. I mean, there's mm. an amazing person. We want to find uh, roles for them. But also, uh, design talent has such a long pipeline. You know, there's people that you've been in touch with until it's time for them or time for us. And we look for a role that's a magic fit. Um, so that's always really important. Always willing to buy coffee for, for interesting people. Great. Fantastic. And Matt, where can people find you if they want to find out? I'm, I'm unfindable. Unfindable, <laughs> yeah. Um, to, to be announced, I think. Okay. All right, good. I'm <laughs> at Flynn Tracy on everything. You can follow this episode and more at ausdesignradio.com and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram and SoundCloud at ausdesignradio. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Tara. Thank Thanks, you guys. so much, Tara. Thank you.